Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Crisis in Clare as some locals protest housing asylum seekers in their area. It's not from where they're from. We've the utmost of sympathy for these people come running from a war torn community. It's not that. Why didn't people consult with us first? I mean, we, we could have come to some sort of an agreement. Later, one woman's horrific story of a violent attack at home and her message to other domestic abuse survivors. I mean, do we have to die before anything is done? You know, it's just not good enough. And I think women are being let down on every level. Later, would you give up your free car park space at work to save the planet? You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. another set of protests against asylum seekers has thrown a fresh spotlight on the government's immigration policies. A group of residents is maintaining a presence outside the site of a former hotel and holiday homes at McGowan House in Inch near Ennis in County Clare tonight, following the arrival of a group of asylum seekers in the area yesterday. While access to the site and roads leading to the property had been blocked using a tractor, some of the migrants have left the property, but it's understood that around 20 will remain on there tonight. It's not from where, where they're from. We've the utmost of sympathy for these people coming running from a war-torn community. It's not that. Why didn't people consult with us first? And maybe we could have come to some sort of an agreement or maybe have a lesser amount of people coming here. I would welcome them you and would, say yeah, this is... Would. I would, of yeah, course, yeah. because well, we are working. Get, get because I live in an assignment. Because there's nowhere for them to no, stay. No, of course, there's nowhere here either. But that's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with fear. These people have come Where's from war-torn country. They wouldn't walk out the gate. They asked us could they walk down the road and we told them no problem in the world they can walk down the road. Go over and ask them. We told them, we, we, we told them we'd get them a bus to Indianas if they wanted it. We'll do whatever they want to go. Well, I'm joined on Skype by Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley and here in studio by independent TD Violet Ann Wynne. Kira Phelan, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. And uh, we also reached out to some of the protesters to appear on the programme tonight, but no one was available to us. Uh, you did hear some of the voices there of people who, who have been speaking, who have been gathering um, in Inch to voice their protest at uh, the arrival of asylum seekers. And I want to go to Timmy Dooley first, because, Timmy, you have been there as well. Um, tell us... Uh, if you could, how could you describe the situation as it stands there tonight? Well, I think there's a level of calm there. Certainly, uh, I was there last night, as were others, um, and there was quite a lot of tension amongst the local community because a, a bus arrived without any due notice. Um, information circulated last week from the department indicating that about 69 individuals, you know, seeking refugee status uh, would be placed at Mangana House. And that did send a wave of concerned through the community, principally because 
it's such a small isolated area um, and the facility is small. And there had been concerns expressed previously about the lack of fire certification issues around um, sewerage and uh, just general environmental health in the area. So there was, there was some concerns, people concerned about the narrow roads, concerned if they drive the road where they you know, want to cause an accident or whatever. So, so there was a, a lot of concern. We had a public meeting down there last Friday night, which we were invited to and a number of us attended. Uh, and obviously that set the stage for, for, for what has happened since. So when, as I understand it, the bus arrived yesterday evening, a number of locals got together in an initial reaction um, set to, I suppose, put a blockade in place so that no further buses would come through if they were on the way, which clearly they weren't. Um, but during the course of today, my it was this evening before I managed to get back from Dublin, but my understanding from talking to people that there was a good engagement between members of the community uh, and those uh, new inhabitants of the area, those that are seeking a refugee status, okay. working with uh, each other's, giving them a lift to town, providing them with food, entering into chats and dialogue with them. Um, so I would say the situation is calm. Uh, this thing we've kind of, the group of the local community met with the management of the facility. And I think there's an effort now being made to try to engage and get some kind of an agreement in place about about the ultimate numbers that will be at the facility. All right. That's, I think, okay. that at this stage. I'm trying to get clarity, Timmy, on where you stand on this. Is it with those protesting who say they have legitimate concerns, they worry about the suitability of the location, or are you in favour of the decision to accommodate this group of asylum seekers at this hotel and in, in the adjacent houses? Well, I'm trying to be uh, an honest broker. I'm trying to find a situation where we resolve uh, a situation where there's a necessity for a blockade. But where where do you ultimately well. stand on this? Like, well, so we heard from the Thonish today, there's no need for any blockade, there's no need for this. Do you, do you agree with me, Hall Martin, on that? Um, or, 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 do, or do you believe, you know, the yeah. decision is right that asylum seekers, they do need to find shelter for them somewhere. And while this is not ideal, they have to have somewhere to go. I don't think there's a need for a blockade. And I communicated that to people this evening uh, at the facility. And I would have said the same last night. And I think the only way that you can build confidence with the local community uh, is to engage with them. And that's what I spent the evening doing, trying to explain the situation, trying to explain the pressure that the government is under, which it is. 84,000 people already uh, in in uh, refugee accommodation, way above what they would normally have to do. So they would, government and, and, and the department would never ideally be looking at McGowan House. It is wholly unsuitable. I think government officials would recognise that too. They find themselves in this impossible position, nowhere to go, and there's somebody prepared to take them. But by the same token, there are fears in the community and they need to be addressed as well. So it's about communication. It's about trying to reach a compromise. Um, and the vast majority of the people in the community recognise there's a problem. They recognise there's 20 there now. And my sort of understanding as I would have left there this evening was that they're prepared to work with the 20 that are there and they're prepared to engage in a consultation as to what happens after that. And I think what we have to be really careful about doing is branding or putting labels on anybody. Um, the community have concerns they need to be listened to. Um, it's not about taking sides. It's about trying to find a way to de-escalate the situation. Okay. It's about trying to find a way that the local people can get on with their lives as they were up to last week. And it's also about recognising that there has to be an accommodation found for people who have found themselves in this country through no fault of their own, 
who are fleeing war and terror. Okay. Timmy, just uh, sorry, to, to, to get to the nub of it, though, you believe the accommodation is unsuitable but needs must. Is that what you're saying in this situation? I think the accommodation is unsuitable for the, the size and scale of what was proposed initially. I don't think it's capable of facilitating or hosting 70 people. And I think everybody in the community respects and recognises that. Of course, okay. there's people in the community who don't want anybody there. And I get that. I understand that. There are others who are prepared to recognise that needs most. There's a difficult situation. Right. And can we compromise? And the only way a compromise can be found is by discussion, negotiation and engagement. Okay. And I'm, I'm up for trying to, 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 to do that and to engage with that process. And that's what I spent the last number of hours doing. And maybe we'll be successful, maybe we won't, but we'll try to get a de-escalation of the situation okay. that we don't have the roads blockaded. All right. Uh, I want to bring Emer O'Connor in. Um, Emer, you are manager of the Clare Immigrant Support Centre. You've also been there at Inch today. Um, suitability has been brought up about um, about about the, the hotel and the, uh, and the adjacent houses. Are the buildings and the adjacent holiday houses suitable um, in your opinion, you've been speaking to people that have arrived at the site. Um, uh, how are they finding it? And do you think it's appropriate? The, the, the accommodation wouldn't be the most suitable accommodation that the government could offer or that, that's available. But as Timmy just said there a minute ago, there is a shortage of accommodation. And these people are here. We must do the best we can for them. And while Inch may not be the most suitable place, it is certainly far more suitable than a camp in Naplesheen or the streets of Dublin where 500 people are living at the moment. And, and in Naplesheen, there's 102 people in tents. Now, those tents were vacated last winter with a promise from the government that they would not be utilised again. But here we are, Naplesheen is at capacity. So while Inch, at least, it's a roof over their head, it's um, it's shelter, it, it's not the best because it is remote and um, there there isn't much around. But, you know, we will work with local services to ensure that they can come in and out tennis. I spoke with many of the men there today. Their primary concern is to advance their status, their legal status in the country. So they want some help with that. And that's the kind of practical support mm -hmm. that we offer. They also want help to go back to English classes because some of them had been attending English classes in Dublin. And they want help to find jobs because a lot of them are in the country now for five months. And they, rec they recognise and are aware of the fact that they can get a work permit when they're six months in the country. So they're the issues that were facing the men today. And I think, you know, they were glad to be out of City West, but they were living with apprehension and fear because of the, the welcome they got in the locality. And, and it's a very sad day there that a lot of people, you know, that that's the welcome because we've over 4,000 refugees in the county at the moment and they're very successfully being accommodated and we're like we as Clare Immigrant Support Centre, we're just one agency and we work with a number of agencies across the county to provide the best services and that Emer, we can. Emer, um, some actually left, didn't they? They left the, 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 the house, they left the accommodation and why did they say they were doing that? Well, the, those that had left, left before I arrived this afternoon. And we arrived there at about two and it took us an hour to gain access because the road was blockaded and we had to call for guard assistance to allow us entry into the premises to do our work. Um, so the people that were gone 
left because they, they, they just felt they weren't welcome. For, and that's anecdotally from the other other residents in the centre, you know, because I wasn't speaking to anybody that left, except I know that three people came back while I was there. Whether they stayed on the rest of the evening or not, I don't know, but they did come back and avail of our services. And I think at that stage, they were delighted that there was somebody had arrived into the centre that was saying, hello, you're welcome and we'll help as best we can because they hadn't met that, you know, from the local community. OK, uh, I just want to bring our panel in at this point. Uh, Violet Ann Wynne, you are a TD local to the area. Um, in your view, do you think protest, this protest was inevitable? I think it definitely could have been anticipated and I think it's hugely disappointing that it got to this point where this protest did um, take place in the manner in which it did, it did as well. And then to hear that members actually left um, the, the house itself then or a number of them, it's, it's encouraging to know that some came back. But I think, you know, I'm hugely disappointed as a public representative um, with the minister, uh, not, not Minister O'Gorman in particular, I do understand the pressures that he is under and I think just in hindsight knowing that he had to write to his colleague ministers to seek support was um, a clear example of how much how lack of how, how little support he is getting in his role and considering his portfolio has responsibility for the most vulnerable in our society I know that um, many have called now for there to be a minister for integration specifically with responsibility considering the scale and the level of, of, of pressure that they are under in this situation. Can I ask you though, what would have, you said, you know, that it could have been prevented. What could have prevented um, the opposition to the housing of asylum seekers at this location? What could have stopped these protests? Information and, and engagement, I think. You know, Do you they... think it's as simple as that, that if people were told two weeks ago, um, perhaps that this was happening, that they would say, that's okay with us? No, I don't believe so. It takes more than just information. It takes engagement and consultation, um, a lot of which are uh, a big job of work to be done. But I think, you know, I wrote to the minister around that specific uh, fact that they aren't engaging with the, the local community and communities and those that are directly impacted by decisions that are in effect made in Dublin. Um, and so, you know, he had given me insurances in January when we seen protests um, being exercised in the area of Shannon when we've seen that they had procured the, the Unit 153 in the industrial estate and that caused the same kind of a reaction back then. Um, and so when I raised it with the minister, he had assured me at the time that he was going to ensure that there was more efforts in relation to public consultation. And I you think say you've seen... Very, Not a lot of that. No, none whatsoever. And I think the concerns that have been raised around the lack of public transport and, and what's going to happen to these individuals when placed there and, and for, uh, I suppose, 12 months as the contract, as we know, has been signed. Kira, um, in uh, the government response to all of this, the Thornish is saying no need for a blockade. Uh, we have the Taoiseach, who's over in Iceland at the moment, saying similar, you know, that there's no need for these protests, asking for them to, you know, step down, but they're trying now to manage a very difficult situation. Yeah, so the government have found themselves in that, I suppose, at seems breaking point that they're scrambling so much for accommodation and also it appears failing to engage with communities which we have been hearing about 
for over a year now since the war in Ukraine first began and there was a significant influx of both Ukrainians and international protection applicants that this push for engagement with communities and it just hasn't happened and we're and the government would say that you know in some cases that they are given uh, free accommodation and they have to move on, on it very quickly and they do so because they're in such dire straits mm -hmm. to find um, pr uh, accommodation to house asylum seekers we do know um, although I know Violet had mentioned, you know, that Roger Gorman was seeking support from his uh, cabinet colleagues on this, like there is a difficulty in securing accommodation in particular for international protection applicants, um, particularly, particularly single men. And there doesn't seem to be that same concern or issue in securing um, accommodation from private providers for Ukrainians. OK, so that that being always being the problem and always being the flashpoint in these instances, really, even when you had a case of Ukrainian families being at one given hotel and then when they tried to shift it and move asylum seekers into the area, the protests are around the arrival of asylum seekers here. Mm. So what like what have the opposition seized on? Is it coming back to that communication? What you know, what locals need to be told in advance, there needs to be better integration and communication at local level? Yeah, I suppose the issue that um, the government are facing now is calls from the opposition parties, uh, Mary Lou MacDonald, Sinn Féin leader in the Dáil today, asking for Roderick O'Gorman and Housing Minister Dara O'Brien to come before the House and take statements and question and answers. And essentially what the Irish Council for Refugees were looking for is a plan. What is your plan here? I understand there is frustration uh, within the coalition regarding, you know, Roderick O'Gorman seems to be under pressure that he's coming looking for short-term accommodation, but what exactly is the medium to longer-term plan? We are hearing that, you know, the provision of student accommodation is going to come on stream again. That will be used in the coming weeks once uh, third-level students finish up their academic year. But what happens when students have to come back and those refugees need to be housed elsewhere? Um, Timmy, to bring you back in on that, uh, is there a plan? And if there is a plan, where is it hidden? Well, there isn't a plan as such, other than that the department has been working, I suppose, really hard to try and find um, additional accommodation. Sorry, as I Timmy, can outside, I stop you there and ask you, why is there no plan? The plan, at the, as I said, the plan at the outset had been to try and find accommodation based on, the, on, on, on what was available. The continued growth in the inward migration has been well ahead uh, of what was expected. So there's about 84,000 people that are, are mm. currently housed, um, which is way above. Well, I think a year ago there was talk, oh. and I remember Helen McAtee, I think she was speaking at Dublin Airport, said, you know, there was talk of 100,000 people requiring international yeah. shelter. That, that, and, and that's true. And that's where we're but, at. But, so where's the plan? But with, but, but with respect, Claire, you just cannot magic up accommodation. It's just not possible to wave a wand and have a suitable accommodation for everybody. The government Well, it's have not been about magicking up, but it's, it's about, I suppose, supplying accommodation, having a, an yeah. immediate strategy and then having a medium to long-term strategy. Yeah. So do you think and there's the a, there, there, there is, if you're saying that there's, there is no plan, which is what you said, is there a lack of sort of coherent planning just across government around all of I, this? I, Strategy has been very clear, Claire. Strategy has been to find as much available accommodation as was possible. There was a strategy then around putting in place modular accommodation on state land. There were changes made to the planning rules, which allowed for 
certain buildings, office accommodation, etc., that were at commercial planning to be able to be converted with the support or through the interface with the local authorities. That's underway. So that 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 that's the plan that was there at, at the start. So when I said there is no plan, there's no new plan. You're saying, is there a new plan? No, there's no new plan. The plan from the start was to try to find whatever accommodation was there at the start. There were some accommodation mm. centres that didn't have any uh, occupants, residents. They were filled. The wave continued. There were changes then to the planning rules and laws uh, to allow for the conversion of other buildings. We've seen some of that happen. Uh, it's quite slow, obviously, because you have to meet okay. certain building regulation centres. So so, 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 so the plan is the same plan that was there from the start to try to find... And there was a plan there at the start, was there? Well, there, there was, Claire. I mean, I've, I've outlined it for you. Okay. Uh, well, it was only because I was asking. You said there is no plan. So it's, it's just well, trying to establish that because that's been the criticism around all of this, um, that if there is a plan, it's not transparent, it's not clear, um, and it's led to scenes like this where we have, you know, just for, what, what, what is the accusation of the lack of consultation. I, I thought the question you asked me was, was there a new plan? The plan that I'm aware of is what the plan that was there from the start, which has been, as I have outlined to you, all right. Okay. Uh, Violet Ann, you heard that. Um, the plan that's there now is the plan that was there from the start. Yeah, it's not doing anything for, for confidence, I, I can tell you that. And I think just the fact that, you know, the the um, Senator Dooley himself doesn't have the, the first-hand information, like uh, I suppose the legi legitimate concerns that were raised were around the lack of public transport, the lack of um, essential and basic services in that specific location. It wasn't just around the suitability of the property itself. It was also in relation to, you know, what level of integration are these individuals going to experience if they cannot integrate into the surrounding society as such. Um, and so, you know, the fact that those kind of um, uh, information or that kind of information... So if wraparound services were in place, if transport was in place and there was a sense at community level that all these services were available, readily available, and the community could integrate Absolutely. And with people there, that there wouldn't be that opposition, you're well, saying? Well, there, there definitely wouldn't be this level of fear that I think people are, are genuinely feeling at this point in time. I think the real issue here is that. that... Yeah, I think the real issue here is that successive governments have failed with the housing crisis and no one could have anticipated the war in Ukraine. However, governments have been warned for years now that they needed to do something to accommodate... Um, refugees coming across Europe and into the lights of Ireland. And I think the whole situation with the lack of accommodation here and the supply just further exposes the failure of successive governments to do something about the housing crisis. Like we've been talking about modular housing for how long and we still haven't seen the first tranche of modular housing. I know they're to open in Mahon in County Cork soon, but it's delayed uh, upon delay and yes you can't put them on the back of a trail overnight and pop them up but we we thought that we'd be so further on at this stage and that's only for ukrainians that we know of yet they may they may put in international protection applicants there but uh, it's going to take a long time and it's the first ones aren't going to be up and running until the middle of june okay and fine just to say they were promised for April. So the fact that they're still not in place now is again affecting confidence and, and that's not being, I suppose, missed by the public. And, and the fact that when Minister O'Gorman mentioned the modular homes, he talked about the necessary infrastructure that would be uh, put in place around those modular homes. So the fact that that necessary infrastructure has not been um, sought for, for the likes of McGowan House is, is obviously making the situation worse. Um, Emer, to co come back to you briefly on all of this, um, where, where do you see... Uh, how do you see all of this ending? 
how do I see it ending? Oh gosh, Claire, I don't know. But what I th what I can say is that I think what we need is a whole of government approach to the problem. The crisis at this stage is at critical point, and we need to avoid a host of problems with the over like the Department of Children and Equality and Integration is completely overburdened with the with their um, remit of been charged with providing accommodation and we have 4,000 people in direct provision centres who have their status got and are ready to move out and there's nowhere for them to go. So if there was some plan to move them on, then the reception centres and the, the direct provision centres wouldn't be so crowded and this situation wouldn't be arising on a regular basis. We've had this in Mullingar a couple of weeks ago. It's all down to a lack of communication and a lack of consultation with people and a lot of information and a lack of information because organizations like mine we're not informed when um people are moving into the county we often hear it from accommodation providers okay. themselves that there is 10 new arrivals or so on all right okay uh, my thanks to you emer thank you for joining us on the program the rest of uh, our panel will be staying with us coming up next plans to cut free parking spaces for public workers as part of climate emergency measures Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Do stay with us. Welcome back. My panel is still here with me. I'm also joined on Skype by Saib O'Neill, a lecturer in climate and energy law at TU Dublin and coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Because next we are talking about the public sector climate action mandate of 2023. Um, it's long enough title, wordy enough, but in essence, Kira, it's about leading from the top. It's about public bodies, public buildings, uh, making that effort to cut their emissions. Mm. And it starts with the car parks. Yeah, so this is one that kind of will probably irk a lot of people. And essentially, it's going to be the phasing out of parking in public buildings. Um, Eamon Ryan out today speaking to reporters saying that he wants it to happen from now and that employers should start phasing out um, these parking spaces if there is good public transport for employees uh, obviously, there will be parking for uh, those employees and people with mobility issues. But essentially, um, at the post-cabinet briefing today, when the government press secretaries were asked about this, um, it seemed to be that there was no real, you know, hard criteria on how exactly the departments were to issue, um, you know, this advice, how it was going to be met, were there any timelines or hard dates um, on when public bodies had to reach these targets. And it, it, it seemed a little bit watery. Um, also... Were there answers to any of those things? Uh, just that that the Eamon Ryan would be writing to the departments, um, all departments and co cabinet colleagues to engage 
uh, on this and basically the phasing out needed to happen from now. So it was a little bit watery on it. All right, let's bring Saif O'Neill in. Saif, um, it's an initiative clearly that you would be um, very much in favour of. Um, what's, the, what's the big deal um, behind this? Is it essentially about sort of leading, leading from the front, leading from the top on this and um, encouraging everyone else to sort of take a leaf out of the politicians' books? Absolutely. Well, the issue of public sector car parking spaces has actually been on the agenda for over 10 years. It just never got any traction before. And what has changed is that we now have a climate law that sets a legally binding target for us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 51% by 2030. And that's on a pathway to net zero emissions well before 2050. We also have a set of carbon budgets and every sector has to use up its fair share of that carbon budget as allocated out by the government. And that includes the public sector. Um, so when we're talking about um, this issue in particular, having said all of that, I think you could nearly park the climate dimension, park the greenhouse gas emissions completely, and just think about good quality urban spaces. The majority of these public buildings are in towns and cities. The majority of them are actually in Dublin City. And what we need to do is really get cars out of Dublin City. Uh, we have congestion problems, air pollution, uh, you know, and an appalling sort of severance and delays and all kinds of uh, issues that arise from that congestion. So we have to get uh, people out of the cars and into public transport and active travel. And there really isn't uh, any challenge to this. I mean, there's quite a political consensus that this is what has to be done. Well, and as part of that... Five, yeah, yeah. Sorry, just is, this, is the challenge that it's dependent on good public transport being in place in order for um, buildings and employees within buildings to cooperate with this plan uh, do we have the public transport and sufficient public transport infrastructure in place uh, before we force people out of their cars and do away with the parking spaces? Well, I, not for the first time. I think you're kind of skipping a few steps here. So what's actually required when we talk about leading from the top is that each public sector uh, unit of a government department or our agency is going to have to set up a team and in fact, many of them have already done this. They're called green teams and they're the ones looking after the waste recycling and all the rest of it in their buildings, the retrofitting programs and leading out on what's called sustainable mobility. And I was just about to say there that many, many businesses in the city centre are already doing this because they recognise that when you have uh, an employer who has a number of 100 employees, that you're inducing travel demand. So you have to assist the city authorities in managing that in a sustainable way by providing bike parking spaces, uh, showers so that your employees can shower, and basically doing everything you can to foster sustainable traffic modes and link people to public transport, which includes advocacy, by the way, because our transport system is not fit for purpose. It does need lots of improvement. But we're, we're constantly arguing about whether, you know, the chicken or the egg comes first when they both need to be done together. It's about changing the entire system from the demand side in terms of how people behave and the choices that we make, but also enabling people to make better choices. And that's not about making people feel guilty for bad choices. It's about providing the enabling environment with improved public transport and active travel infrastructure. And, you know, the, the, what's happening in the okay. public sector is mirroring what's happening in the private sector. Right. And the idea here is that you can't expect businesses to do this unless government bodies are doing it as well. OK, let's bring in some of those affected motorists. Uh, Timmy Dooley, uh, are you in favour of this? Um, you know, your, your, your Fianna Fáil colleagues in Cabinet have no issue with it. Is there any dissent in the backbenches?
Yeah, look, everyone knows the direction of travel in terms of the decarbonisation uh, of our transport network. Um, but it does require, and the government has committed to significant investment in public travel. So you have to have, in the first instance, an alternative mode. Um, and I think you've got to be cautious then before you start introducing uh, the stick approach. So there's no doubt that there are many people who are prepared to make that change. And they will make that change. Um, for some, it's not going to be adequate. It's not going to be possible based on where they live, where there isn't public transport or the nature of the work that they do, because they need access to an independent mode of transport from one side of the city to the other. And they need to travel during the course of the day. So th there isn't a, a one size fits all. But I think in general terms, there's very significant moves in, the, in that direction. There's a lot more money being spent in terms of active travel initiatives. Uh, both within the city and in rural communities in terms of what's being done as part of the whole green school schemes in terms of kids walking to school uh, and all of that. So there is a there's a very significant shift in attitude towards the decarbonisation of our economy and the recognition will you be of happy? what... Will you be happy to get the train? Yeah, I mean, I can take the train on occasion. It doesn't suit me all the time. I left home this morning at 6.30. I was in Dublin for a number of meetings. I was back in Inch. Uh, later, um, I've dropped in at home now to, to do this call and I'll be back to Dublin tonight. You know, no public transport will meet that demand and that need on occasion. But for sure, there's Sounds occasions. Sounds like you won't want to give up your parking space. Um, let's, I just want well, to... Look, look if, it, if it helps, I, I've no issue with parking space. If, if, if I have to leave my car elsewhere and pay for it, I can do that. I mean, if, if you need to lead from the front, if it makes it easier or more comfortable or palatable for somebody else to change, because as a politician, I should change I'm fine about that, of, of, of course. All right, so I, I it sounds interesting, and I just want to bring Violet Ann in on this. Um, Timmy's saying he may keep the car, but he's happy to pay, you know, parking elsewhere. But I don't know if that goes against the, the spirit of all of this. Um, in your opinion, um, the criticism, I suppose, that's been around this is the, the you know, the transport links being in place. But we heard from Saif O'Neill saying, you know, it isn't a chicken or egg situation. You can do both. And it's really important to take that first big step and uh, lead from the front on this. Yeah, and I would agree. Um, and, but is that, I suppose, the, the approach that the government are going to take? Are they going to tackle both? Both issues at the same instance so as to uh, provide that incentivization for people to see uh, public transport as a viable alternative option. It's all well and good to say, you know, this is the direction that we need to go. And also just to uh, paint the background to this, as, as Kiri did with the previous issue, that this is, um, I suppose, the, the situation, the pressure that we're feeling on this particular issue is down to the lack of um, necessary action that has been needed for the last number of years. So, you know, we signed into that UN agreement on climate action back in 2007. So the fact that only now government have now realised that the public sector should be leading um, is not great. But look, we're here now and, and, and fair enough, they have come forward with this announcement. But the devil will be in the detail, as they say. Um, I would like to know uh, specifics like everybody else, like uh, especially in relation to the flexibility of the 10%. So those that are, are working outside of normal hours and those with extra needs and, and are they going to be facilitated okay. and how would that look? So do you know any of that about, um, I guess, the flexibility or the, the, you know, the T's and C's around all of this? Or is that, is it at this point now that um, individual uh, public, public bodies uh, look at what they've got and look at, and look at how they can manage it themselves? 
I, I imagine that it will be up to each individual government department or state agency to address it because it depends on the location of the building, how many parking spaces are there and uh, lots of other considerations like the late working and the need to provide lots of spaces for visitors, for example, or, or, or people with disabilities. What we can learn, though, from, from other countries and from cities like Nottingham and Rotterdam is that you do need a combination of push and pull mechanisms. So we do need to take measures both within organizations to discourage private car use, as well as alter incentivize the alternatives. And sometimes that's outside the scope of the organization because public transport is provided by other agencies in the state and not by employers. Do we need so to? It's about we, kind of, okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, Sai. Just on point. this, yeah. we're talking mm. a lot about, you know, car parking and, and all, you know, uh, the challenges around of that, but around just public transport and advocating for better public transport, like we have a huge budget surplus at the moment. Is that where, do we really need to now say, you know what, we need to spend an awful lot more. There's no, we don't see empty buses, we don't see empty Lewis's. There certainly wouldn't be um, a lack of demand for, for rural public transport links. Do we need to spend an awful lot more money in that area? I couldn't agree more, but we just have to be conscious that there is a lead in time. It takes a number of years to buy the buses, get the buses, train the drivers, recruit the drivers, which is proving to be a difficulty as well, and also to roll out the things, the, 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 the routes. But these won't work if you don't have space on the road for the buses. So no matter what we do, we have to confront some difficult decisions, uh, sometimes politically quite difficult decisions, about reallocating road space okay. and about making sure okay. that public transport and active right. travel gets the priority. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thanks, Sive, uh, to Timmy, to Violet Ann and to Kira. Uh, coming up next, one woman's horrific story of a violent attack in the home and her message to other domestic abuse survivors. I mean, do we have to die before anything is done? You know, it's just not good enough. And I think women are being let down on every level. Welcome back. A Kildare woman who was stabbed by her ex-partner and succeeded in her appeal for a longer sentence says prison terms for offenders do not act as a sufficient deterrent. Louise Carada from Athai spoke to Kira Doherty about her story. Keith Malone of Barnishrone in Mount Mellican County Leash was given a jail sentence of three years with the final three months suspended after pleading guilty to a charge of assault causing harm. The DPP agreed to an appeal and his sentence is now four years with the final three months suspended. Some viewers may find parts of this interview upsetting. Thank you for agreeing to speak to us on The Tonight Show. Uh, I want to go back to the very beginning, to where you met your ex-partner and what your relationship was like at the beginning. Well, I actually met him through a friend of mine. I thought he was very handsome, I thought he was confident, he seemed like a really nice guy. Um, and we got on really, really well at the start. Um, and I just thought, like, I'm so lucky, you know, this guy's fabulous, like, he's, and he likes me. Was he always respectful towards you? Um, he was at the start, yeah, he was respectful and he'd always look after me and say, oh, if anyone ever done anything on you, you know, like, I'll mind you, you know, and I'll look after you. How serious did this relationship get? So we were together for four and a half years and I had our daughter then. At that stage, we had had some issues in the relationship and we'd broke up and got back together a couple of times. It's very lonely because 
you don't want to tell anybody what's going on. So you live with this every day yourself. I'd imagine you're just walking on eggshells all of the time, trying to constantly predict this relationship. Is that what it's like? It is absolutely soul destroying. And you're not really fighting for for them or that relationship. Even you're fighting for, you know, to keep your family together because that was always very important to me, you know, and, and you know, abusers play on that as well. So, you know, if we were getting on, I was just really happy and, you know, we'd be there with our daughter and things were good. They, when they were good, they felt really good. But of course, it wouldn't, it wouldn't last long before something would happen. Did you manage to shield your children from this? Is it possible to do that? As much as you try and shield them from it and you do want to protect them, there's no really, there's no way to do that. So they're, they're always like the forgotten kind of victims in this, I feel like as well. And if you as an adult can't tell people how you feel and explain what's going on and you're afraid to tell people, you can imagine how a child would feel um, dealing with that tension every day and that, those emotions. And no doubt being a mother throughout all of this, you're trying to keep life as normal as possible, bring the kids to school or bring them to their after-school activities or just continue on as if everything is normal. But there are times when I just, I actually just thought I'm losing my mind here. I mean, you might have days where you, you went to the bathroom just to cry, you know, um, and just to, to let it out of a little bit before you kind of pull yourself together. I'd be talking to people sometimes and it was like I wasn't even there. And of course, if you told anybody that anything happened, you'd be afraid then that they might go and tell somebody else. Um, or then they would judge you and say things like, oh, if that was me now, I wouldn't let that happen to me. And you know, you're too soft and you know, why are you falling for this all the time? And so that makes you just feel worse. So again, you just keep it in. You just don't talk about it. And you just try and get on with your life because when you have children, that's what you have to do. So you say the relationship was on and off, but at what point did you say, this is it, I need to get out of this relationship and I need to stay out permanently? I just lost my dad, actually. But I remember just thinking my dad would hate this. My dad, if he knew this was happening to me, how would he feel, you know, that his daughter was going through this and had this life and was was being abused in this way. So I just, I thought I need to get out of here. What is it like to tell somebody, to communicate with somebody you're in an abusive relationship with that it is over, that you do want them to leave? Um, I actually remember being terrified and I remember driving him home and um, I was actually saying this to him while we were driving and I said, I don't have to put up with this anymore. And I remember as soon as I said it, I just, this fear went through me because it was like, oh my God, he's, you know, he's ready to blow now. Tell me about the night that subsequently led to his arrest. So I think it was, it was on the 6th of January. So just after I'd ended the relationship and he wanted to come over. Um, so I let him come over to see our daughter. And then he decided he was going to go drinking with his friends. Um, which I wasn't too happy about because he was there to spend time with his child. Um, and so off he went to the pub and I rang a friend of mine and I said, he's gone off to the pub now and he's come over to see our daughter. So she said, look, do you know what, Louise, I'll, uh, I'll mind her for a while, you go down. 
He was drinking really heavily at this point. Um, he was ordering treble whiskies, actually, I remember. So he came back to the house and when he, when he came in the door, he tried to instigate an, ar an argument with me, which I just didn't fall for. I just wasn't having it. And he just looked at me and he looked me up and down and said, I could stab you. He just took off running into the kitchen. Um, I seen him opening a drawer in the kitchen and taking a knife out. And of course, then I knew, OK, I've got to get out of here. So I ran to the front door. Um, when, he ha when he came in the door, he had actually locked the front door. So I couldn't get out. Um, so he caught me at the door and he stabbed me in the back a number of times. Um, and I just remember screaming and I was at the bottom of my stairs in the house. And I just looked at him and said, I love you so much. I love you so much, please. Um, and he was still holding the knife at this point so I actually thought he was going to kill me um, so he's holding the knife and he was looking at me and he still looked really really angry um, and then I just remember he just looked at my body I was obviously bleeding a lot and he looked at me and said what are you after making me do and I remember saying I can't breathe I can't breathe and I said I'm going to die now but I don't want to die and I thought about my dad because obviously he had passed away a few weeks before and in my mind I could see my dad's face and I thought he's he's coming for me now um, and I could see him so clearly you know and then I remember thinking I can't go I can't leave my kids and in my mind I could see my kids all their faces and my family and I just thought no I can't go um, and I just have to hold on so he was obviously arrested and he was charged but it was a long time, wasn't it, before the case actually got to courts and he was sentenced. What was that period of time like? Um, well, it took three years. So, I mean, it was the fact that it went on for so long was awful. And of course, um, I remember the DPP, they were ready to go ahead after a year and a half. Um, and it just kept getting adjourned. So every three months, the call over date would come up and I would get a phone call. And of course, I would build myself up and that went on for so long. And of course, like I had um, PTSD after my attack um, to the point that I was afraid to go back to my house in case he was in the house. I was afraid to leave the house in case he was outside because at this point he was out on bail. Um, I had vivid flashbacks of being stabbed over and over. Um, I remember locking myself in my bedroom, making phone calls to people to make sure that he wasn't outside. Um, it was just horrific. It was just all the time. So I was absolutely terrified in my own home. I just never felt safe. For years yeah. and years. It's just not worth it. So initially he was sentenced to three years with the last three months suspended. So it had been two years, nine months. But then that was increased because the DPP appealed it, thinking it was too lenient to four years with the last three months suspended. Yeah. How did you feel about that initial sentence and the fact that it was increased in the end? I didn't feel happy. I, I wasn't happy wasn't an emotion that I had. I was relieved that it was over. Um, and the day of the appeal was our daughter's fifth birthday. So it was just a very emotional time and it brought up, it brought back up everything. Um, so, you know, I think they made the right decision, but um, I think they should have got it right in the first place. And I hope that 
in the future in these cases that they will do that. Having been through this and I suppose come out the other end, what do you think can be done policy-wise to help and to encourage victims to come forward? Look, I'm not a politician. Um, I'm not in the know about policies and that sort of thing. I'm just a woman who has been through something and through that I've been contacted by other women who have been through the same thing and who don't have a voice and who feel like they're not being listened to. Um, and they're just very frustrated and they feel really, really let down by the system. So definitely I would say we do need more support for these women who are coming out of these relationships, you know, um, and we really need to look at how we can do that. I know they're looking at, the Minister for Justice said that he was going to have more um, refuges for women, but where are they? When are they coming? You know, I mean, do we have to die before anything is done? You know, it's just not good enough. And I think women are being let down on every level. Uh, women who are going through this abuse. And um, we really, really do need to, you know, do something and do something quickly. Thank you so very much for speaking to us. Louise Carrada telling her story there. Well, that is it from us tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. We are also on Instagram and TikTok, but from all the lay team here, good night. You take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.